We're here talking about risk. We're starting a new series this morning, and uh, we're going to spend the next um, oh, five or six weeks looking at sections of the Scripture, people in the Scripture who stepped out on faith. They, they risked something, um, usually because God had specifically asked them to. Um, but, but, but we have this sort of um, love-hate relationship with risk, right? We, even, we, see, uh, we see something that draws us into a, into a scene like that because, you know, the awkward risk of young love and and all the potential that's there but everything that can be lost and we 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 recognize that right and so we, our culture has these this this tug and pull when it comes to risk and if you if you poke around and if you're investing money you can punch you know you can take a quiz that's going to tell you what's your tolerance for risk and and we sort of treat risk as if it's it's sort of a um just a like, like a, a preference that we have. I prefer to risk more or I prefer to risk less. And what we're going to do over the next month or so is we're actually going to take a look at what the scriptures tell us about risk. Is risk really just like an item on a buffet line in our faith that we can, we can choose to risk here and there? Or is risk something that's actually inherent to our faith? And, um, and, and, Spoiler alert, the, the answer is, we live in a world full of risk. You can't avoid it. Okay? Risk management may be a, a field that, that matters in, in business, but when it comes to our relationship with Christ, he's asking us to risk everything we've got. And so what we're going to do is we're going to examine that over the next five, six weeks. In just a few minutes, we're going to look at the story of Gideon. It's in Judges chapter 6, if you have a Bible and you want to turn there. Um, and, but, but we're going to walk through the story of Gideon together. But before we do, do you remember when, uh, you remember when YOLO was a thing? That like five minutes? Some of you may not, but YOLO was a thing. And, um, YOLO was sort of this like battle cry of, of, uh, of the arrested that said, uh, hey, you only live once. It was like carpe diem, but dumbed down by like 2000 years of Western culture, right? Um, but, you know, YOLO became this sort of like, like way of saying, hey, I just did something really dumb. But YOLO, you only live once, right? Like, I didn't bother studying for that test and I failed it. YOLO, it was like, it was like your, your, your hall pass for stupid actions, right? And, and, um, and this, there's sort of this even like generational discontent, uh, disconnect when it comes to, to risk and when it comes to things like, like, I remember being a teacher when the YOLO thing was a big deal with my students, right? And I remember a student talking about getting a speeding ticket. They were going over 100 miles per hour in a 35-mile-per-hour zone, lost their license, right? And, and, the, and oh, my parents were all upset with me. And honest to goodness, they went YOLO at the end of it. And all their buddies went like, uh, uh. And I can remember, it, 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 was, the, it was the moment where, like, my, my generational disconnect from, from the students that I worked with at school, it was the moment that it was crystallized for me. Like, I, I do not inhabit the same culture that these people do. Right? You, you can't just YOLO away your stupid decisions. Like, risk is real and you've cost yourself all of this. And, and then, I, and I'm thinking through like, the, the, now the, the burden that's on your parents to take you places because you lost your license and, but YOLO, Right? And so when we talk about risk, 
the thing that I've found over time that's true in my life, and maybe it is in yours, is that I have this risk aversion. I spend an awful lot of my time and my energy trying to, to control my risk, trying to live in a way where I'm secure enough that when risk presents itself, I have the option of taking that risk. If I decide that, that I want to take that risk, that I believe that the payoff for taking that risk is going to be enough for me, then I can do that. But when we look at what the scriptures tell us about risk, we get a little different view of how we ought to engage with it. You see, now I, I, my, I need to get a premise out there because much of what I'm going to say from the story of Gideon, much of what I believe the scriptures are telling us in the story of Gideon, won't make a lot of sense unless we sort of understand the really big picture. And so, honest to goodness, in 60 seconds or less, I want to try and give you the big picture. God created a world that was essentially risk-free. Risk existed. We know it did because choices were made that caused negative consequences to take place. But, but he, in, 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 he created a world that for Adam and Eve, that for, that for the first people, that risk was something that wasn't, it wasn't a reality for them because they didn't fully inhabit danger, right? See, without, without danger, there's no real risk. But as soon as Adam and Eve choose their own way over the path that God had given them and sin enters the world, and we know that with sin comes death, well, is there any greater danger than death, both physical and spiritual death? And so suddenly we find ourselves living in a world where risk is all around us. Everything is dangerous. But, and this is the glorious thing, but what the scriptures go on from Genesis chapter 3 to tell us is that God is at work to not just like remove risk or to manage risk, God is actually redeeming risk. He's taking risk and he's repurposing it in a way that it actually serves his purposes for our flourishing. That's redemption. And then ultimately, as we read through the entirety of the scriptures, we find that, that our relationship with God is restored and, and uninterrupted. We're with him again. And the risk is removed because we're with God, we see him face to face. But where we find ourselves in the story, the big picture of God's story, is right there, smack dab in the middle. On one hand, we have the world that is, the reality of sin and the danger of death that it brings. But on the other hand, we serve a God who has built risk into his system of redemption. So that without faith, without risking something on his behalf, it's impossible to please him. And that's the tension that we live with, that we find. It's one of the reasons why I believe we have this, this sort of ambivalence towards risk. And, and we're not sure what to do with it. If we take it too far, we become like a mindless thrill seeker. Right? Where, where the rewards are so diminished by the risks that we're taking. We become recklessly spontaneous without any deliberation about what's at stake. But on the other hand, we can become so paralyzed by our fear of risk that we, we sit inactive. That, that, we never, that movement never takes place in our life. And so what I'd like to do 
And, and this is going to sort of serve as an introduction to the series. There's so much to say on this, okay? And, and so keep coming back, by the way. Um, but, but what I want to do today is I want to take us here to Judges chapter 6, and I want to share the story of what we're calling the risk-taking farmhand. The risk-taking farmhand. We're going we're gonna to begin here in the story of Gideon. Gideon is a character in the, a person. I won't say character. He's a person who lived quite some time ago. He was one of the children of Israel. He, um, he was, as he'll tell us, not from a very important family. Um, and, uh, and Gideon, essentially, when we meet him, he's going to be working his father's farm. Okay? But Gideon lived at a period of time where there was a lot of persecution. You had God had, had delivered the land into his people's hands, the hands of the Israelites. He'd given them the land, but he'd given them some very specific instructions about driving out the people from the land. And the primary reason those people needed to be driven out was because those people had foreign gods. And those foreign gods would serve as distractions for his people that would keep them, keep his people from honoring him and him alone. And so, so the, the people had done this in fits and starts, but where we find Gideon, it very clearly tells us the people had not obeyed the voice of the Lord. And they were, they were worshiping all the false gods of the people of the land around them. And with, when that, as that happened, the, the protection of God is removed and foreign invaders were coming in and taking from them. And it actually tells us the beginning of Judges, or, uh, yeah, sorry, Judges chapter 6. It actually tells us there that um, the people were hiding in caves. Like they were, they were getting as far away from, from the action as possible because they were afraid. They were afraid of what, what this group of people, they're called the Midianites, and you'll see that in the story. The Midianites, they were afraid of what the Midianites could do to them and had been doing to them. Very oppressive, invading enemy that was coming in. And it's in the midst of that environment that we find Gideon. Okay? So if you're in Judges 6, and I am going to ask you to indulge me this morning, I'm going to do a fair amount of just reading through the text. But I think it's important that we see the whole story so that we can understand the transformation that takes place in Gideon as he, as he takes his risk. So we're going to start in uh, Judges chapter 6, verse 11, is where we find Gideon. And it says this, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth, that's a, or yours might say oak, it's a big tree, at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. Now it tells us he's in a wine press and he's beating out wheat. That's a little bit like, and I'm guilty of this, right? Like, that's a little bit of like uh, trying to pound a nail with a wrench. You ever done that? You kind of got your hand on something and you don't have a hammer nearby, but you need to pound something, so you just grab the wrench and bang on. Well, a little bit, that's, he's using the wrong tool. He's in a wine press. The wine press would have been kind of down below the ground. It would have been a, a large piece of rock that they would have crushed grapes on to make wine. And he's in the wine press, but it says he's threshing out the wheat, okay? And uh, he's beating out the wheat. He's, he's, he's preparing wheat. Now, it's clear why he's doing this in, in the context. It's important that we understand. He's doing this because if he's down a little bit below the ground, he can hide from the, from the Midianites. They were coming in and stealing food. He didn't want his food to be taken, so he's in hiding. In verse 12, it says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Right? And here's this incongruity that pops up. Here's this guy who's hiding just to prepare his food, and the angel of the Lord appears to him and calls him a mighty man of valor. So we find Gideon hiding from his enemies in the wine press, and the angel of the Lord says, mighty man of valor. And Gideon says to him, 
Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wondrous deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. Isn't that a powerful question? Right? Like, here's this guy who's hiding from his enemies. He's in the wine press. And I love the fact that in this story, the key question comes to us in the very first couple verses. Here's the question. God, if you're with me, then why is all this bad stuff happening to me? How do you recognize when a risk is ready, when you're ripe for a risk? Okay? When you're ripe for a faith step. One of the ways to recognize this is that there's a very real need that's going on. And it seems like, it seems like no one can do anything about this need. Now we're ready for risk. So in the story, the Lord responds, verse 14, and the Lord turned to him and said, go in, in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. And he said to him, he, Gideon said, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. That's a family, larger family group. And I am the least in my father's house. I'm just a little guy. What am I supposed to do about this big problem? And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, if now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign, this is Gideon, that, that, it, uh, that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he, now the angel of the Lord, saying, I will stay till you return. Okay, so take a look. This is, there's a lot of drama packed into just a little paragraph here, right? So, so Gideon's beating out the weed in the wine press. The, the angel of the Lord comes in and says, mighty man of valor, like in your hiding, mighty man of valor. And, and Gideon's response is like, oh, yeah, right. You're with us, but we're suffering all this time. God says, yeah, by the way, you're the one I want to do something about that. Go in, like the might that you're showing in talking back to me, let's harness that for a purpose that's greater than just hiding. And so Gideon says, yeah, okay, um, but I'm not the right person, okay? I'm not the right person. I'm just a small guy from a small family. I don't have the influence nor the power to do it. Because you see where Gideon starts this story. He starts this story in a place where the problem is big and he's small, where the resources that he believes are necessary to accomplish it all must be contained in the power that he currently holds. And I have to ask, like, isn't that, isn't that how we normally live our lives? Isn't that what, what a, a risk tolerance quiz is asking? Do you have the resources available to you at your disposal to accomplish the task that you want to accomplish? And if the answer is no, you don't have those resources, don't risk it. Is the stage set? Do we, you with me on this? So we have to keep reading. If we're going to get out of here in any decent time, we have to keep reading. Verse 19. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, take the meat and unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth on them. And he did so. And the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. 
And I, this is a very strange thing to me in verse 22. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. Oops. Have you done that one? Right? Like, have you complained to, have you, compla- have you been at work and complained about the boss? Like, not your immediate boss, but like the boss of the boss, someone that, you know, maybe you're not in meetings with regular, and then you realize, like, oh, no. I have. Okay. Um, you haven't. You're, you're much better off than I am. But, so Gideon says, verse 22, Gideon perceived that this was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, peace be to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, the Lord is peace. To this day it still stands at Ophir, which belongs to the Ebiezerites, his family. That night the Lord said to him, take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon then took ten, ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. Okay? So Gideon's been invited into this mighty man of valor. I'm going to say something about you, Gideon, that you don't believe is true right now. It's that you have everything you need in order to accomplish this task. Gideon says, no way. But he says, if that's really true... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tr- test you on this. And he, he prepares this meal and brings this meal out and sets it in front of the angel. The angel touches it. It disappears. Gideon goes, oh, boy. Right? Oh, no. You are an angel of the Lord. Now I'm really in for this, right? Like, if now I believe that what you've said is actually true. And if what you said is actually true, before Gideon even understands the last step, he understands that the next step is going to cost him. And so he begins to say, this is, this is no small matter. He builds an altar. It's a cultural sign of the importance of this. The fact that it tells us that altar still stood to the time of the writing of this, this, um, this, this book of the Bible tells us that, that it stood for a long time. And so Gideon um, hears from the Lord again. And he says, he says, I want you to, to make this sacrifice. In order to make a sacrifice, you're going to need to tear down the altar of Baal and the Asherah pole. Now, there's, again, all kinds of things we could say here, but, but essentially, the, the altar of Baal and the Asherah pole, these were, these were two symbols of, of, there were two deities or, or totems of, of the, the gods of the people of the land that the Israelites inhabited. When God said, go into the land, take the land, but don't worship the gods, drive out the people, essentially, he could have explicitly said, don't worship Baal, don't worship Asherah, okay? These were fertility, a fertility god and goddess. It seems like they maybe had married them into a, a marital relationship, putting those altars side by side. Okay? And, and people, there were very negative consequences for those who tore down these altars. Now, here's the thing that's fascinating, though. Okay? And I think this is important to the story. The, the bales, it wasn't like, it wasn't like just a one god Baal. There were many Baals. There was a Baal of, of this region, a Baal of that region. Same thing with Asherah. Asherah was like a local deity. Now, there were many Asherahs. Then everywhere you would go, there'd be an Asherah in that town, an Asherah pole in that town, because they actually believed that like the, a specific deity inhabited that place, and it didn't travel when you went. Now, what is it that 
the Lord had just told to Gideon about the reality of Gideon's situation. He said, go because I am with you. I go with you. Do you notice the distinction between I go with you and what we just what you, we know about the bales and the ashers? The ashers and the bales didn't go with you. Okay? There was some other one there. And so we're starting to catch a, a theme in this that, that one of the things God's going to tell Gideon about this risk is that it doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter what circumstance you find yourself in. I'm there in it. So let's hang on to that. Oh, but notice, too, that Gideon, this is offside in this passage, but Gideon does the act. He goes, he takes the step of faith, but he does it under cover of darkness. Now, fascinating to me, there's nothing in the passage that, that tells us that was bad or wrong. It just makes note of it. Okay? Gideon did the thing he was told to do under cover of darkness. So we want to keep reading. We're going to jump ahead. He does, he does the act. And they actually, the, the people around want to kill him. Um, his father steps in and says, no. And remember, this was, these were his father's altars. His father steps in and says, no, if these gods are real, they can take care of Gideon on their own, which they don't. So draw a conclusion. Verse 33 is where I want to pick it up. Verse 33. Now, all the Midianites, that was the original enemy, and the Amalekites. So the Midianites have partnered up. They've got like another, like their, their little brothers with them, right? And they've shown up for the fight. The Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east, they've got their friends, came together and they crossed the Jordan. They've crossed into the, the land of Israel. And they encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. And he sounded the trumpet and the Abiezrites, his family, were called out to follow him. And he sent messages through all, throughout all Manasseh, the larger family group. And they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulon, and Naphtali. And they went up to meet him. So, so Gideon, this is, Gideon has taken this first step of faith. He tore down the altar. He, he does as the Lord tells him. And I want to point out that in, in, in verse um, 20, or 30, 34 there, it says that the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon or came on Gideon. It doesn't tell us in the, in the passage that Gideon asked for it. It doesn't even tell us specifically why at that point in time the Spirit of the Lord came on Gideon. But I do want us to notice that Gideon had taken that first step into this risk. And the Spirit of the Lord came on him for this task. The power of God is now in him. And look what happens next. He sounds the trumpet. He has a new energy. He has a, a, a new power that he didn't have... A, he had it available to him, but he wasn't living in it. And so it goes on. Then Gideon said to God, verse 36, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, it is dry on the ground, then I shall know you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. So fleece, okay? I'd like dew on the fleece, but dry on the ground. That happened. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung out enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night. And it was dry on the fleece only and on all the ground there was dew. 
So Gideon, Gideon poses this test, and we talk about fleeces from time to time. It's saying, I put out a fleece, is shorthand from this story. Essentially, what Gideon's doing is he's trying to confirm the message from God, right? Isn't this what we do? Isn't this what we do? We say, and, and, and it, would be, it would be foolish of me at this point to not even bring in what's going on here at Life Community in my life at this point in time. This is, when I'm reading this, I'm, I'm, my heart is coming to bear on these pages. God says, I've got something. He speaks through the community, speaks through people. I've got something for you. I'm asking you to do this. And I say, no, I'm a little guy. This is bigger than I can bear. And I say, but, okay, God, but, if this is really what you want, I'm going to test it in this way with this group of people. And there's confirmation. And I go, yeah, that's nice confirmation, but I'm going to take another one over here, right? And I'm really, really glad. Can I just say this? I'm really glad that when I read this, I don't see God angry with Gideon. I don't see him upset. I love the fact that when Gideon says, hey, I'm going to go, I'm going to prepare a test of food. I love the fact that it actually says, the Lord says, okay, I'll wait right here. Oh, I've got this for you. It's a few steps further down the path than what you can see right now. And while God doesn't inhabit our time, he understands that we, we can't see the end. That he's, there's a path, a journey that we're on. And he's patient with us. And so, hang, hang on to that. See, Gideon isn't, isn't chastised for being deliberate. Right? He was God's man for the task put in front of him. And God was patient with him while he worked it out. And so the story goes on. I can probably read it faster than I can summarize. So let's read chapter 7, verse 1. Then Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, they change his name in there. It's, it's an Old Testament thing. Actually, in the New Testament, it's a Bible thing. And all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Moriah in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is faithful and trembling, or fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. Okay, what do you think that the risk calculator online is going to tell Gideon, right? You have, you have 82, Gideon, good job. You're ready to take on more risk. And God very explicitly says, no, 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 no. Now remember, where did Gideon start? Afraid of man, right? No, 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 I need more. I need bigger. And God says, not really. We're going to turn this on end. Keep looking. Verse 4, and the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them there for you. And any one of whom I say to you, this one, shall go with, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So we brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue, as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. 
And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouth, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. And let all the others go every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets and set all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. So, so 82,000 to start whittled down to the 300. Okay? Whittled down to the 300. Remember what, what we started with here. God says to him, go in might, I am with you. And Gideon says, yeah, I don't have what I need. I need an army. I need weapons. I need strength and power. I need influence over the people. And God says to him in the midst of this, actually, you've got it backwards. You see, the resources that we want to accumulate, right? I'll t- well, essentially, what I hear in, in, in Gideon to start this story that I hear in myself is, okay, God, I'll take that risk when I can manage the outcome. I'll take that risk when I feel like it's a fair fight. I'll take that risk when everything in front of me is, is lined up in a way that I can just knock it down one step at a time and I can see where we're going. And God says, no, that's exactly backwards from what I'm asking of you. Now, again, thank God he's patient with us, right? He doesn't pile that on us in an instant and say, now or never. But this is the process, the path that Gideon's on. And in verse 9, you still with me? Judges 7. That same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. I love this, but God says this. But if you are afraid to go down, I am God. If you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say. And afterward, your hands shall be strengthened to go against the camp. I'm going to pause here for just a second to say this. Isn't this awesome? Because Gideon didn't ask for another sign. You catch this? Gideon wasn't sitting there saying, okay, God, I'm not doing this unless. We have no indication of inactivity. And yet, God says in his grace, I want to give you more than you actually asked for. I've got something great for you. It's going to cost you to do it, yes. But I... I want, to, I want to make it so that, so that this, is, this is something that you do with it's post-deliberation recklessness. Verse 12, And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, behold, I dreamed a dream. And behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, I would love to know how he knew this, but hey, awesome. His comrade answered, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. 
When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon, the hundred men who were with him, came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle of the watch when they had, had just set the watch. And they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three, the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Bethshida towards Zerera, as far as the border of Abel-Mehelo by Tebeth. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. So, so there's this crazy plan that has torches, bowls, and trumpets, right? There's no, there's no swords. Now, here's, again, a couple observations, and I want to turn our attention to, okay, so what with us, right? But here's this, this another fascinating thing about this. There's nowhere in here that it told us God told Gideon to stand around the camp to blow the trumpet, to yell out. It seems like this was Gideon's plan. This was his idea. God didn't give him the how. God gave him the where. You go. Gideon was responsible for taking... God had pointed him in a direction and said, this is the direction you're to go without taking him the full distance and saying, this is how you're going to get there. And this is what risk looks like for us. God says he prompts us through, through, through felt need. He prompts us through the hurting of those around us. He prompts us through the voices of others that are in our community to say, there's something that needs to be done. Will you do it? And if you're like me, you say, okay, maybe. If you'll tell me how, I, how I'm supposed to do it. What, do, what am I supposed to do? But in the story of Gideon, the how is left out as far as where it came from. And it looks like Gideon takes what's available to him. He's obedient to God. And then did you catch what it said? The Lord set the enemy one on another. You see, there's this amazing dynamic. This dynamic between obedience to God, faith in God, and the outcome being in his hands. Man, I would love to tell you what it's going to be like six months from now. I'd love to give you every step of a proper plan in my life. This is how I'm going to get from today to there. I wish I had it. Boy, I wish I had it. I can see it. But ultimately, right, we are responsible in the midst of the risk-taking opportunity. We're responsible for taking the step. We're responsible for tearing down the distracting gods and goddesses in our life, the idols in our life, and moving towards the goal. That's the story. Now, I'd love to tell you that it all just ends lovely for Gideon. 
right? Everybody cheers. But just look at chapter 8, verse 1, and then we're going we're gonna to hit a few other points in, in closing. Chapter 8, verse 1. They, by the way, Gideon chases down the enemies. It takes a long time. This battle did not end that night. The men of Ephraim said to him, What is this that you have done to us not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. Wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be great if they just said like, Hey, thanks for running the enemy out of the land and from stealing our food. They accuse him fiercely and say, you didn't let us, let us in on the glory, on the party. This is what I, this is one more fascinating thing about taking risk with God. Listen, it does not guarantee. It doesn't guarantee that everything just swimmingly goes away and becomes perfect. Gideon spent the better part of the next several years fighting with the very people, not physically fighting, but fighting ideologically, fighting as a leader with the very people that he had trusted God to deliver. And it tells us at the end of his story, at the end of chapter 8, Gideon died. He had a life. He had a family. He died. And after he was gone, nobody really remembered the things he did. What? This is like a mighty man of valor. God said it himself. Are you telling me that I'm going to stick my neck out and no one's going to even... Well, wait a minute. It's not a promise that no one's going to. But you know what's, what's buried in this? It's not buried. It's, it's out in the open. If, if, if we're risking for personal glory, we're not on the same page with God on this. Right? If I'm risking because I'm going to get some kind of personal reward, you've missed the point. The risk is to accomplish God's purpose. Oh, there's parallel purposes. There's the purpose for the people, and there's the purpose in Gideon's heart. But there's a difference between a risk that I take in order to have a better or more comfortable life and a risk that God has set before me. And so I want to wrap up with just a few thoughts. And the first one is this. Notice what's in the story of Gideon. And these are things that you'll see over the next month in all these other stories. But the courage to faithfully take risk for God is fueled by the reality of God's presence. Notice where Gideon starts hiding away from anyone's eye because he's afraid of men. But God steps in and he says, sorry, Gideon says, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where is wonders that answers told us about? Has he abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian? And God says, no, I'm with you. The whole story of removing the, all the people around him, it takes away Gideon's security of the, the crowd, the security of the, the army to say, if God is with me, if God is with me, do I need the masses with me? And this is a very real question for you and I, right? If, if I'm compelled that God is directing me to take a step of faith, to risk something in my life for his purposes, when I take that step, will I move back if no one takes it with me? Will I shrink back into the crowd? Will I, or, or will I wait around until I can get enough people to hold my hand while I jump? 
But that's not the story of Gideon. That's not the, the example that's set before us here. The example is this. If God is with me, I've got everything I need. I don't need swords. I don't need power. I don't need influence. I don't need a, a horde. I need God. The second thing that I notice here that in Gideon that, again, is such a blessing to me that is risk is rightly approached with deliberation and caution, not with reckless spontaneity. Okay? It's not to say that you never take a step that the world looks at and says that was foolish. But Gideon, Gideon isn't scolded for his deliberation. Look at what it says. The Lord said, and I mentioned this, but I will wait until you return. God will wait. He's been waiting on many of us for a long time. He'll wait. We saw it again with Gideon's test. He, said, he says to God, don't be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow me another fleece. This is a reality of life with God and risk-taking. Jesus himself says to count the cost of being his disciple. God's not afraid of deliberation. He's not, he's not concerned with, he's concerned with, well, action is ultimately in our hands, right? Endless inaction is a lack of, is a lack of faith. If I sit back and say, I'm not moving until my checklist of all my requirements is managed, well, now we've crossed from reckless spontaneity into inaction, right? And in the Gideon story, he acts, right? He, took, he takes the ten servants. He goes and did as the Lord told him to tear down the Baal and the Asherah pole. In chapter 6, verse 34, when the Spirit of the Lord comes on him, he immediately goes out and blows it. He had to take the action. He blows the trumpet to call the people together. He tells the men in chapter 7 when they're about to attack, he says, watch me, follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do as I do. I'm going now. I'm stepping out. He took that risk. You see, action ultimately is the responsibility of the one called by God. Right? I don't want to, I'm, I'm afraid of formulas and I want to be careful with absolutes on statements on this, like God will never, but there just isn't a lot of evidence that God's going to push you off the cliff into faith, into taking a risk. He's going to take you, show you to the cliff and say, if you jump, I'm there, I've got you. But ultimately, we have to step. So what's the risk in front of us, in front of you? that you've been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting on. For some of you, that risk is, is quite frankly, handing your life to God by faith, saying, okay, you are Lord, accepting his offer to be your Savior, inviting him to be your Lord. And we wait, and we wait for I don't know what. Listen, there's a great opportunity a week from today to very literally get in the water. For those of you who, who would say that Christ is your Lord, but you've never professed that publicly, you've never told the, the community of believers and the, the community at large that you are with Christ, we're going to have baptism next week. I promise it's not too late. If you tell us today, I'm in. I'm not worried about what others around me will say. I'm standing with God today. 
We'd love to baptize you. But we have to step. And then finally, God uses risk takers both to bring about the change he desires in the broader as well as to change the heart of the one taking the risk. It's happening on two levels here, right? God is delivering his people. He's called Gideon to a cause much bigger than himself. And at the same time, look at what's happening in Gideon. I love this. Where did Gideon start? Jimmy, where did Gideon start? Remember when the angel shows up and Gideon says, he's hiding from men. He's hiding from men. But when the angel of the Lord appears to him and says, mighty man of valor, go out in the strength of the Lord, he says to God, no way. This guy was defiant of God and afraid of man. And quite frankly, we ought not to cast stones at him because an awful lot of the time I think we're in the exact same situation. I'm afraid of what people will say about me if I do something that's risky for the name of God. I'm afraid of what people will say if I too emphatically speak out on behalf of the people that God tells me to speak out on behalf of. I'm afraid. I'm afraid of man. So when God says it, I say, no, I'm not afraid of God, but I'm afraid of man. And that's where Gideon was. But notice what happens through the process. Gideon takes a step at night, right? He takes a step at night. And then he goes on with the fleece. And he says, okay, God, I'm going to test this a little bit. And then, still afraid, God sends him into the camp. And when he comes back from the camp, we read this in chapter 7, but it says, when Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed down and worshipped. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, get up, the Lord has given the Midianite camp into our hands. Do you catch the shift that took place in Gideon? In taking this risk, in, in hearing the voice of God and responding by faith, Gideon goes from a man who was afraid of others, afraid of people, and defiant of God to a man who fears God and is defiant of other people. Do we catch this? This is, what, this is the way that God uses risk in our lives. He uses it to accomplish his bigger purposes. There are causes right now that need you to take a risk for them. Causes for the name of Christ. But you need, you need to take the risk to do it. When God is calling us to the risk and we continue to say no, we're suspended. It's when we begin to say yes, we begin to take the risk that our heart moves, that our heart shifts, and ultimately we land in worship.